Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 26 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I know what I said a couple of weeks ago about getting into vehicles with the dead, but uh, just come with me again on this one. It'll be better, I promise. Let's start this episode the way we always do, with an iTunes review. Great Stories Told Greatly by Turn of Phrases Podcast. I thoroughly enjoy this podcast. The stories are great, but the way they're told is even better. I get so wrapped up in each and every episode. Love it. Many thanks to my good friend Brisky over at the Turn of Phrases Podcast. And just a quick note about that show. If you're a word nerd, like myself, or if you just want to know the origins of common phrases, check out Turn of Phrases. It's a lot of fun. Speaking of good podcasts, here in the podcast partner segment, I like to draw your attention to other good independent podcasts, and I recently discovered one that I am really enjoying. Remember when you were in high school and you knew that your history teacher had way cooler stories than what was in the curriculum? Well now, there is a show that fills in those gaps. Let's hear from them. Hello, I'm Jess. And I'm Joe. And we're Cutting Class Podcast. We are two high school history teachers that do a weekly podcast together every Wednesday. We do all kinds of topics ranging from the funny to the very serious. Joe, what are some shows that we do? Well, I recently just did a history of Halloween and Halloween traditions. And we've also done one on a history of cargo cults in the Pacific Islands that worship airplanes and figures that maybe don't exist in American history. And I took a pretty cool series on the American-Filipino War, also that crazy time that Cleveland released a billion balloons into the air and caused all kinds of chaos. So we have a little bit of everything, and we hope that you guys would give us a listen. We're on iTunes and other kinds of podcast mediums, so check us out, and we hope you guys will enjoy the show. Now really, I can't recommend this show enough if you're at all interested in history. I recently listened to Olga's Revenge, about Olga of Kiev, who I'd never heard of before, and I went back into the back catalog to listen to an episode about the Panama Canal. And there's episodes about Vlad the Impaler, Nero, Henry Ford, there's a whole bunch. But now that you know about Jess and Joe and Cutting Class, let's get into this week's episode. This week, I have the great pleasure of bringing you four original short stories. I've been really excited to do this episode ever since I read these ones. We're going to start off the show with the same author we ended on a couple of weeks ago, and that's our good friend Moxie Labouche over at the Your Brain on Facts podcast. Moxie's story is called Locked Eyes. Now, you've heard me say it before, but I'm a subscriber to her show, and you should be too. Every week, Moxie brings you a half-hour show of things you didn't know, things you thought you knew, and things you never knew you never knew. Moxie also has another story that she wrote for the Halloween season, but by the end of this month, I'll have done 13 short stories, and I just couldn't fit that one in. But it will definitely make its way onto the show eventually. Our second story today is called Deep Dive, and that one comes to us from Augie Peterson. Now, if Augie's name sounds familiar, that's because she was a podcast partner way back in August on the episode featuring stories from Reddit, which of course means that Augie has her own show that you should check out called The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. Augie is an author of Scary Short Stories, so if that's your thing, and I'm guessing that it's at least not not your thing since you're here today, check out her show and you can visit her website at augiepeterson.wordpress.com. You can find her stories there, and you can find info about her short story collection that you can pick up on Amazon. That's also where she gives snarky reviews of bad horror movies, which is also fun. Now, I'm giving you a lot of links in today's episode and a lot of references and places to go and people to follow. I'm going to put all these links 
and social media handles and whatnot in the show notes. So make sure that you check out the show notes this week and follow everybody that you need to follow. Story number three today comes from Iona Douglas, and it is called Death on Wheels. Iona teaches English in Spain while writing about combat drones, kick-ass lady engineers, and virtual realities. You can follow her at I underscore D writes. Now this story that we're doing today was the first short piece that Iona ever wrote, and the first one that she published. It was first published on a website called LiterallyStories2014.com, and that's a site you can check out for more short stories. Today's final story is called The Hole, and it was written by John Bowie. John is a writer living in the Bay Area with his wife and two dogs, and he is working on a forthcoming sci-fi novel called The Houses of the Curious. He is planning on self-publishing in the next few months, so visit his site, johnbowiewriting.com, to sign up for updates. I've signed up, and I recommend you do as well. I think you'll be more inclined to do so after you hear John's story today. The Hole was first published in Writer's Digest in 2017, where it won first prize for horror in the popular fiction competition. Now that is the intro to the stories and the authors, but one more note before we move on here. I want to make sure that you stay with me all the way through to the end of the show this week. Now, of course, you should always be listening to the end of the show, but especially this week. I've got a note about next week's episode that I think you're going to enjoy. So, now that you know a little bit more about the authors and their stories, let's move on to today's presentation. Locked Eyes by Moxie LaBouche The corpse's eyes were open. This was usually the case. The average body didn't come in with lids placidly shut, as those whose eyes had been closed a moment after their on-screen death by one of the more important characters. Most of the residents of basement number two north were wheeled in, were wheeled about, and then waited with their eyes at half-mast. Their lids would approximately bisect the iris of the eye, lending them an air of boredom. They never appeared interested in anything. But this corpse... His eyes were tracking her. Dr. Arena Cowrie had been awake a long time, but not long enough to be seeing things. She let her eyes blink as much as they cared to, to clear away the shadow of what her mind was trying to claim had happened in front of her. The rich brown eyes of the male corpse, pale, immobile, and uncovered on the rolling table, had followed her as she stepped from his head to the spot by his waist, where she was currently trapped. A logical voice struggled to be heard over the thought-eroding feeling of being startled. It was a shadow. Having an explanation, even if it was wrong, had miraculous powers to quell panic. Arena nodded the tiniest bit, as if to herself. She fixed her eyes to his and stepped back to the space between the counter and the head of the table. The colored irises of his eyes stayed where they were. No, no they didn't. His eyes were straightforward now, even looking upwards a little as far upwards as a person can look without muscles to move their eyebrows. Surely the eyes looking to the right was the shadow. Surely. Arena stepped slowly to a place parallel to the first, but perhaps a step back. The near eye was in the slight shadow cast on the left side of his face, but the corpse's eyes were absolutely following her. Arena had no fear of dead bodies. The meat we leave behind had been her bread and butter for nearly ten years, even prior to medical school, the thought of being near or touching a dead person was unremarkable to her. She did not fear dead people. 
but someone on her table who was potentially still alive set her skin crawling. It was the persistent urban legend of medical examiners, a body waking up in their morgue, the equivalent of humorous things removed from rectums by ER doctors, only not humorous for any party involved. The state in which she lived allowed paramedics to declare death on scene before arriving at the hospital. Maybe in the back of the rig, in the heat of the moment, someone had made a mistake. A mistake both understandably human and indescribably profound. Irina took a deliberate step forward and placed her fingertips on the inside of the corpse's wrist. His skin was cold, as cold as it should be. There was no pulse. She moved her hand to his neck, where there was not even a sign of a sign of a pulse. Arena would have listened to his heart, but it was not as if a stethoscope was standard equipment in the morgue, and she could not bring herself to lay her ear to his chest. She fished under her lab coat, into her pants pocket for her cell phone, and turned on its flashlight, over one eye, then away, over the other eye, then away. The pupils did not constrict or relax. Arena moved to the tray of tools on the counter for a scalpel. His eyes, never blinking, stayed with her. Holding her breath, she pressed the tip of the blade into the thin flesh of his sternum and withdrew it. Braced against what she had no reason to expect to see, she looked closely at the one-centimeter wound. No blood. No inflammatory response. There was no way this body could be alive, yet his eyes locked onto hers when she looked at his face. Her reflex was to talk to him, but that wasn't her way. She didn't make conversation with the corpses. That was the domain of TV coroners, the archetypes who are always shown eating in the morgue, despite how many rules that would violate. Nonetheless, she wanted to talk to him, to ask him if he was still inside, if he needed help. Arena's voice came out as a coarse breath as she tried to speak. She cleared her throat, <coughs> gathered her nerve, and tried again. Now her voice sounded too loud in the still room. Hey, um, hello? Are you... can you hear me? There was no response in his eyes. If you can hear me, move your eyes side to side. The irises did not move. After a few anxious seconds, Arena swayed her body. The eyes followed the movement. Move your eyes, she said more strongly. Nothing. If she did not move, neither did his eyes. Should she tell someone? Who would she tell? What would she say? There was no professional protocol for a dead man with a single, seemingly living trait. What could she do? She started the autopsy. Dive by Augie Peterson I've lived within the colorful confines of this reef my entire life. The small town of fish that live here alongside me have never ventured beyond it. Stories circulate through our small community of unknown creatures more frightening than the ones that often visit. The ones that presently plague us float above our small community, poke and prod us. They flash bright lights in our faces and steal pieces of our homes for no reason. I, on the other hand, take special care to go out as far out to the border of our reef as possible. For as long as I can remember, the vast open ocean has fascinated me, its murky blue canvas calling to me to explore it. 
My parents are, of course, hesitant. They think my adventurous personality will not only risk my life, but the lives of everyone we live with. But as I've grown, my curiosity has blossomed and my fins have strengthened. They're at the point where I can handle the depths that my friends all seem to be concerned about. But I'm not going to sit idly by and let them make up my mind for me. I'm going to see for myself what's really out there. Currently, I'm camping out in my section of my family's coral cluster. I'm waiting for the light to be right for me to make my expedition under the cover of early morning. I can barely wait. Eventually, the lights get bright enough that I can see where I'm going. I dart out of my cluster and swim as fast as I can towards the outskirts of the reef. Exhilarated, the water cools as the ocean floor falls further away from my steady position at the surface. The porous rocks become further apart as I swim faster and faster, a flutter of excitement pulsating throughout my entire body. All of a sudden, I let my tail direct me based on the current. I loosen the muscles around my fins and float this way and that, spinning with the slow waves. I close my eyes and smile as I flip around and twirl. It's a freeing experience, unlike anything I've ever felt. I'd been traveling all day and the light was now warm against my spine as I wandered. The entire experience was ethereal. After some time, I regulate myself, making sure my movements stay quick and frequent to keep up with the cooler water that's now surrounding me. I realize I can no longer see the ocean floor. What had been a landscape of seaweed and rocks has now become a void. All I saw was black. I was enticed at the thought of exploring more, but was also struck with a sense of dread. I decided to head back before it got dark again. Turning around was not as simple as I had anticipated. Living in such a small portion of the ocean gave me a false sense of security. I was only a small fish. How was I supposed to survive in the deep ocean? The warmth on my back was the only comfort amid the confusion of trying to swim towards the shore. The void below me never seemed to end. I swam as quickly as my tired fins could take me. My trek out here was longer than I remember. I must have let myself get carried away with the current too far. I began to think I wasn't swimming towards the shore at all. However, I pushed past my fears and continued swimming in a straight line. After a long while, the rocks and seaweed presented themselves through the sandy floor. I slowed my speed a bit once I saw the familiar shapes. It almost cried with relief. I pushed myself to go a bit further, and before I knew it, I saw my reef. With the colors I knew so well before my eyes, I knew I could relax a bit and take my time getting back. It was until I saw something soar over me. It almost looked as if it was one of those monsters with the flashing lights. A bulbous head with broad shoulders swam overhead. As it continued its journey, however, the shoulders devolved into eight long trailing arms. My parents had always warned me about octopuses, but the ones I knew were all friendly and only ate crabs. This one was much bigger than the others I'd seen. As it swooped its large body over my tiny one, I froze. It was huge, so large that I could only see parts of its pale flesh at a time. The eyes were milky, yet alert. It had red rings all over it, and in its tentacles it carried an object I'd never seen before. It stopped short before me, ballooning the net of flesh between his arms to quickly change direction. Its pale complexion reflected against the light streaming down into the water. Well, hello, it said in a low voice. I said nothing. You're a bit far from the reef, my tiny friend. I remained silent. I was frozen with fear and couldn't put words together. I was too busy thinking about how worried my family would be when I didn't return home from a trip I had already hidden from them. Not very talkative today? That's all right, tiny friend. I don't need to talk. Its eyes narrowed, and it backed up to fan its tentacles around the space I was floating in. I dodged them and tried to swim towards the reef. 
I managed to make a space between the octopus and myself, enough that I felt like I could actually make it. Before I knew it, however, it was gaining speed again and making its way back to me. Do you know what this is? It shouted as it cut me off yet again. This is the skull of a monster. I killed it myself. Monsters have the tastiest meat of them all. Once you've tasted one, you long for the day when you can taste yet another. A monster? I said, struggling to keep myself from shaking. It could tell I was frightened and used that to its advantage. Yes, and if I can handle a monster, I can surely handle a pesky little fish like you. You think you can outsmart me with your quick little fins? At this, he jabbed me with one arm, a sucker sticking to the side of my body in the process. He wrapped the tip of that arm around me and pulled me close, my body barely bigger than the space between his eyes. You're nothing more than a mid-afternoon snack, tiny friend. Then why haven't you eaten me yet? What good is it to brag to me about past conquests when you could just have it over with and eat me? The octopus could obviously feel my nerves through his grasp as I spoke, but he loosened it nonetheless once I finished speaking. I like to make my meals suffer, mentally and physically. I'm the monster of monsters, it said, gesticulating with the arm I was in, causing a bit of nausea on my part. Sure you are, I replied, more confident now that I would get away with my life, though still unsure how I would get out of its grasp. I have an idea, I mused. It paused but didn't say anything, so I continued. You're really proud of that accomplishment, but let's face it, at this point, you're just bragging to a little fish so they feel scared but end up escaping and telling their friends how scary you are. Am I getting warmer? Well, I... It trailed off, looking downward. Let me go, and I'll take you to my friends and family, and you can terrorize them. Its face lit up as much as an octopus's can. That sounds wonderful! It exclaimed. I thought so. Now, let me go, and I'll take you there. Its grip loosened, and I led the way back home. You know... It started after we'd been swimming for a while. I didn't really kill this monster. I found this at the bottom of the ocean one night and thought it looked cool, so I brought it home with me. It has helped me nab some really nice meals, though. That must be nice, I replied. Make sure you tell everyone you've eaten a shark. They'll flip. A giggle emitted from the <laughs> octopus. As the ocean floor came closer to the surface, the octopus crawled along it, camouflaging itself against the sand. The reef was only a short swim away, so I turned to the octopus. You stay here. Keep hidden in the sand so no one sees you. I'll go back to my cluster, and once everyone has welcomed me back, I'll say something like, I'm so glad to be home, and then you come out of nowhere and scare everyone. Oh, that's maniacal. I love it. The octopus made itself flat and hid amongst the sand. I swam up to my cluster to the cheers and sighs of relief to those around me. Once the chatter calmed down a little, I said a little too loudly, Man, am I glad to be home. With only a moment's hesitation, the octopus, pale and red-ringed, descended upon the coral. Growling and scaring off the smaller fish with a monster skull, it made itself large and known. What I had expected was to see my new friend show off its monster skull, terrorize some of my friends, and leave. I thought maybe I'd see it again sometime, and was excited at the prospect. What I hadn't expected was retaliation. Once the fish in my small coral community realized that there were more of us and only one of it, they attacked. Jellyfish attached to its head, its arms pinned down under sea urchins. It was bitten into and nipped at by those I had loved and called family. Its screams were muffled by the onslaught of fish schooling around it and tearing its flesh to pieces. It cried for me, but there was no way this tiny fish could help. 
With a heavy heart, I watched my new friend be torn to shreds. Now they keep the monster skull next to its remains, warning all others that trespass. I, on the other hand, would rather take my chances in the open ocean. Death on Wheels by Iona Douglas I don't hear the car. The storm has swallowed the world in a white noise that bites at my ears. It pulls up ahead, silent, expectant. Home is a three-kilometer walk away and a slick trip down the mountain. A beautiful vista on a mild day, tortuous when a storm came to town. It's a hearse. I ignore the symbolism for now. I haven't committed to anything yet. The passenger seat is on my side. I can't see the driver. The window rolls down and Hall and Oates floats out. The warmth licks my face clean like a familiar dog. I look towards the village. From here I can't even make out the road past five meters or so. I finger my phone in my pocket, my safety net. The image of a man buried alive flashes across my mind. They were worried about burying people alive then. They'd installed levers into coffins to raise flags and awareness above ground. Inside the car is warm, smells of cigarettes. Are you making my dreams come? The lock on the door clicks down and I tighten my grip on my phone as I turn to face the driver. He or she is wearing a dark black cloak. The hood is wide and rests on their shoulders, which are bobbing up and down as they sing along to the music. On a night when bad dreams become a screamer, when they're messing with the dreamer, I can't laugh it in the face. They sing before bellowing a forced laugh and turning to face me. I'm about to laugh at the absurdity of this, and then I realize... He or she doesn't have a face. Not just a face, there's no blank canvas onto which one could be drawn or painted or tattooed. There's no head, no neck, nothing. And yet the hood moved as though it was embodied by someone. Welcome, says the voice. I feel like it's smiling at me. I squeal, the pinch I delivered to my thigh failing to wake me. But I must have passed out. How long does it take for a body to freeze? I probably wouldn't freeze in this weather. Hypothermia, though. Why didn't I get the bus? Then the angry flashes of their glares arrest me, and I pinch myself again, lighter this time. You too cold? The voice asks, concerned. Too hot? Fiddle away with a the thermostat there, I'm easy. I say nothing. What can I say? Excuse me, but is it true you haven't got a head? If I'm passed out on a road somewhere, I'm hallucinating. I can't ask someone why they haven't got a head. After a time, I lick my lips, trying to capture a few drops of rain. My tongue is stuck to the top of my mouth. Uh, I'm good, thanks. I croak. Are you making my dreams come true? The voice improvised, scatting. There's water in the glove compartment, he said, nodding towards it. Help yourself. I'm pretty sure the voice is male. I take a water, the cap still sealed. I drink, once replenished. What's your name? I ask. Death, Death says. There's a pause, while I expect him to laugh or slap his knee or nudge me. 
He continues humming along to the music. We hit a pothole and his hood falls to his shoulders, exposing his lack of head for the world to see. Whoops, apologies, Death says, pulling the hood back over his head. Sorry about that, he says, once he is covered. Cloak's less alarming. You've got no head, I say. The hood sways from left to right as if to imply I might be wrong. I do, maybe just not visible to you, he says. There is a laugh in his voice. I need to wake up, I say, turning to the windows and looking for a lever to open it. It opens a crack. Yeah, get some air, says Death. The windows are frosted and I can't see the rain. Can you open the window a little more? I ask. Of course, he obliges. The vortex is both licking the bridge of my nose and crawling in towards us from 20 feet away. It's a swirling mass of every color. But how every color looks when you've poured them all into a pot and are starting to stir. Not yet a tub of globulous brown, but colors swirling inwards. It sounds like peristalsis feels. I am sick. What doesn't land on me disappears out into the non-place. I drag my head back into the car, Neil Young's heart of gold seeping towards me. Death was cooing at me, one eye presumably on the road as he handed me some tissues from a packet in the cup holder. There, there, said Death. Don't worry, most people do that. Some people do other stuff. That's why the cover's on your chair now. I'm dead? I ask. Yeah, sorry, says Death. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's kind of in the job description. Not hallucinating? By now this feels pretty real. I don't know about that, Death shrugs. You might be. Can't speak for your mind. And I know that this is it. The awareness, faith in it, crawls over my body. I'm freezing. I turn the temperature to full blast. It barely registers. That happens, Death nods. And I'm crying, big, empty, <laughs> heaving sobs. And I can feel Death's discomfort. You'd think of all people he'd be used to the horror that accompanies the realization that you're about to be no more. What? What happens? <laughs> Next. I manage between heaves. Don't know. I've never been through that end. Death taps along to the music on the steering wheel. I don't want to die. I wail, grabbing his arm and kneeling on the seat. He swerves. Oh there, settle down, he barks. His sternness almost calms me, as if as long as one of us is in control, I know I can somehow escape my doom. This is where I beg. I always knew I'd be a beggar, and what if fantasies where the world ends, and you're the hero, or you're a spy, and you're about to be tortured for information? While I like to think I'd stay stum, resolute, deep down I knew I'd always give in, always beg for my life. Please, anything, there must be something you want. My voice is a cracked whisper. I swallow and push on, my hand on his leg. It feels like a leg. I wonder if there's anything under there. Something you need! He swerves, and I fall into the foothold in front of the seat. Though I know I'm dying, the smack hurts my head. I notice my hands. They're gray. I prod the skin, and it adheres. It's hard, and doesn't fall back into shape. A person has learned much who has learned how to die. Death grumbles. I clamber back onto the seat, the monstrosity outside hidden by the frosted windows. Then I've learned nothing, I growl back, because I'm not ready to go yet. And then quieter. Anything. Surely there's been a deal made before. Death takes no bribes. So out of the billions of people you've p 
picked up, not one of them has tried to barter for their life or succeeded? And then a thought, an irrelevant one, but I ask nonetheless. Do you pick up animals too? Death's cowl turns to face me, and despite the lack of visible expression, I'm certain he's wearing one of disdain. Death takes no bribes, he repeats. I sink back into the chair. Sunk, that is what I am. We travel in silence for a few moments. People say that when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. That's not what was flashing past us outside. The memories were there, the whole carousel of them. But what I thought more about were the things I hadn't done, hadn't eaten, hadn't seen, hadn't tried to do or eat or see because I assumed it would come later. I'd not even been on a plane before. Never left Colorado. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Death sighs. I'm not sure about animals, he mutters. They might have their own people. He's glancing at a little red light above the wing mirror. In two quick practiced movements, he pauses the song and flicks a switch above my head. The light disappears and Death nudges me. Death takes some bribes. The chance is like someone's poked a little hole in my toe, stuck a bicycle pump in there, and pumped. Only once, but it was enough. What would you like? I ask, hushed, breathless. There's only one thing of yours I'd like, said Death. And I'll live? I ask. For now, said Death. I'll see you again one day. And my skin. I look at it. It's blotchy yellow and green now. A maggot wiggles its way out of the cavity where my thumbnail was a moment ago. I spot it on the floor. Back to perfect. What is it? Your memories. My what? His answer has floored me. What are you going to do with my memories? Watch them, of course. Relive them. It gets boring on the road, said Death. He presses another button, and a small screen descends from in front of me. I've got loads back there. He nods toward the back of the hearse, hidden behind the folds of heavy black fabric. You could say I'm a connoisseur, a collector. I knew already that I'd give him them, whatever it takes. But would I still be me without my memories? I met your mom, you know, he says. What did she choose? Oh, she went. Very fatalistic. Didn't want to give you up either. Said she wouldn't be the same. She was a smell to me. Incense. Milk. A brief feeling in an ill-defined face. Worn from memory. That was all I'd be losing of her. But what would I lose of me? Less than the other option allowed. Deal. I am resolute. Great! Says Death. He sounds happy. I am glad. There's a pen and a release form beside the water. He has resumed his humming. I sign on the line and hand Death the paper. He slips it beneath his cowl. Oh, I love this one! He thumbs the volume up and a song I don't recognize trickles out of the speakers. The wetness shocks me to life. Where am I? Who am I? I stumble up, holding onto the tree trunk beside me for balance. It is light. The sun is bright. In the distance, I can see a small village. I take a few steps towards it.
The Hole by John Bowie. The first digger glared at the earth. He could hear it beneath the surface, calling him. He raised his shovel and stabbed downward. The shovel split the soil, prying away a hunk of dirt. It was there. He thrust the shovel down again. The fall of shovel strokes continued. Clods of dirt grew into a pile next to the fledgling hole. Plodding stroke after stroke, he dug. Hours later, the digger passed the topsoil, unrelenting as his spade chipped through the gravel and sunk into the clay. The handle scored blisters across his palms, and dirt packed each fingernail. Soil filled the grooves of his shoes until he slipped on the edges of the hole. He nicked roots and scraped rocks. It demanded he continue. Near dawn, his confused wife found him. Her scream almost formed, but behind the dark rings around his eyes and the sweat sheen staring back at her, she saw the answer to her question. He was there to dig the hole, and so was she. The two of them dug together in silence. The man labored through slow shovel strokes. The woman clawed at the soil with her hands. When her husband collapsed for the first time, she snatched his shovel and continued digging around him. The days passed into nights, and the hole grew. The next digger came on the fourth morning. A concerned neighbor worried over their friend's disappearance. As he tested the unlocked door, the hungry family dog darted out and fled. Rotten, untouched breakfast sat on the table next to a half-evaporated cup of coffee. The neighbor wandered through the house to the yard. He saw the mound of dirt and knew what they had started. Without question, he retrieved another shovel from the garage and walked into the hole. Two more days passed before the missing person report merited a response and the officers went to investigate. They passed through the open house and into the backyard to look over the edge of the hole. The first man lay in the clay, his clothes tattered. The concerned neighbor carried a rock up the embankment, no longer concerned. The officers descended the dirt slope and joined the digging without removing their guns or uniforms. More officers arrived to investigate the disappearance of their fellows. The first cruiser sat on the road, no sign of its drivers. The new arrivals approached with caution. They drew their guns, but nothing could harm the hole. The responding officers felt a moment of curiosity before they understood what they saw below the mound of dirt. The dispatcher cried out over the radio as each officer went silent. Soon, she too would be in the hole. Local news heard the calls of the dispatcher and sent their news van to investigate. The reporter steeled herself near the silent police cars, and her cameraman started filming. She gave her introduction as they walked around the side of the house. She fell silent. The cameraman wordlessly set down his camera. The glass lens watched as he joined her in the hole. The scene beamed from the camera to the news truck to the station. The producer looked up at the monitor, squinting to make sense of what he saw. His gaze relaxed as the realization crept over him, and he left his desk. Confused co-workers asked where he was going, but he did not answer. Quiet spread over the room as the others contemplated the screen and understood what they saw. Some of them walked to their houses to retrieve a shovel or a wheelbarrow. No one thought to take a car as they made their way to the hole. The news channel idled on a near still shot of the hole. Blades of grass lined the cockeyed image, and clods of dirt arced through the air. A digger emerged with a rock, or root, her uniform sweat-soaked and dirty. In the hole, they all looked the same. 
The camera watched, unblinking. Within an hour, every local news station was empty, programming left to run to the colored blocks of off-airtime space. No viewer needed to ask why. They left their tasks and joined in the digging. Family members came home to empty houses and waited for loved ones who had not returned from work. Blank news stations stoked the panic and concerned the families. Emergency dispatch rang unanswered. The internet offered no information. Instead, they called one another, assembling the realization that many of their community were missing. They set out to find them, but only found the hole. Before the week's end, the entire town was digging. Children old enough to understand dug. Babies were left in their cribs. Fires went unnoticed. Pets roamed. And the hole grew. Truckers and travelers arrived in the empty town. Some listened to fear and fled. Others investigated the smoldering ruins and found the hole for themselves. The trucks idled in the street until they ran out of fuel. The leaders were the first pilgrims. Crisis demanded their attention and summoned them to dig. Cameras followed them as they walked and others joined. New leaders replaced the old until there were no leaders left. No military could fight the hole. The missiles and munitions remained unfired while the men marched to dig. Attempts at quarantine dared the soldiers to ask why the silent pilgrims pushed through the blockade. The question gnawed at them until they had to see, and they started the walk themselves. Pilots brought their helicopters to jarring landings so they could clamber off to dig in their flight suits and helmets. More mute pilgrims wandered the countryside, plodding through days and nights and weather. Many died on the walk to the hole, but nothing could stop them once they thought the sweet thought of digging. Within the month, the first digger was long dead and his house had toppled into the hole. Endless more diggers broke rocks and hauled red soil from the depths. It stank of sweat and filth. They did not stop for weather or food, and would only occasionally pause to bend down and scoop and drink from the water that had pooled in muddy footprints. Hundreds of diggers turned to thousands, then millions. The hole compelled its own order like fluids throbbing through an organ. Some diggers hauled dirt from the depths to the growing hillsides. Others dug crude shafts, while more focused to expand the rim. Some pilgrims used the buckets and barrows to carry water from the depths to the surface, sloshing their load as they struggled through the mud. Diggers streamed into the depths and the hole grew to be miles deep and hundreds of miles across. Heavy machinery toppled in unused as the mouth of the hole grew ever outward. To call it a monument would only have misunderstood its scale and purpose. Beyond the rim, a tepid sense of the end started to seep into the remaining pockets of civilization. There was no longer electricity or internet. The wars that riled human purpose since before memory came to their whimpering end as humanity found peace in the hole. No one knew why, but they also did not care. There was baffled disappointment at this doomsday. The tools of learning and art offered no remedy to the hole. The scientists and poets dug like everyone else. Priests and prophets claimed the mystery as their own, but their rapture only conjured the song of the hole. The pious dug in tattered robes and collapsed from thirst alongside sinners. The philosophers left before it seized them, thinking an act of will was better than fate. When they arrived, they dug anyway. They all dug. Because the hole was an answer. The depths of the hole grew hotter and drier as they dug, 
and many diggers died. Others carried the dead out to the dirt mountain. It was a silent three-day walk from the bottom of the hole to the top of the pile. When they arrived, they cast the dead aside to be covered by the next barrow full of dirt. No ceremony or grief, just another long march back to the depths. The last pilgrims arrived at the end of the second winter. They were withered and hollow after months of travel from distant continents. When they arrived at the edge of the hole, they cast themselves down the slope without stopping, as though digging might bring some relief. The final shovel fell without notice. Its worn spade barely pierced the surface before keeling to the side. Dirt spilled next to the last digger as he collapsed. His breathing slowed, vigor drained by thirst and exertion. Rain fell, and mud pooled around him. He sputtered as the filthy water crawled past his mouth and nose. The silt-red water inched up his cheek, past his open eyes. He did not move as it filled his lungs. Too weak to reach the shovel, he felt dissatisfaction. This week we've learned a few valuable lessons. Among them, it can be funny to prank your friends, but make sure they're not prone to being dangerous in their state of panic. Also, if you really feel compelled to start a project, it's a good idea to know the end from the beginning so that you're not, you know, consumed by your own, let's call it, ambition. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram via the same handle, at syypodcast. And you can also use those methods just to say hello. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, next week is the last week of October, and as such, I've got a special treat for you. I talked to Brian and Katie of the This Film is Lit podcast about collaborating on the last episode of this month. Next week, I'm going to be presenting to you The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, which is, of course, a classic Halloween story. This Film is Lit is a show about film adaptations where they talk about the differences between the book and the movie and give the final verdict of which one is better. Brian has a film degree, and Katie has two English degrees, so they come at the stories from opposite directions, if you will. He watches the movie, but doesn't necessarily read the book, and she reads the book before they watch the movie. So they did a background on The Legend of Sleepy Hollow last week on their show, and they talked about different Headless Horseman lore, which was super interesting. So make sure you check out that episode. And this week, they're doing the actual analysis of the Sleepy Hollow movie compared to the story by Washington Irving, and that will be released by the time you're hearing this. So your assignment is this. Time this out however you want to do it. Listen to both of their episodes before the story next week, or listen to the preview that came out last week, then listen to the story next week, and then listen to the movie or story comparison, or, you know, however you want to do it. But either way, listen to all three. So, until we meet again, this has been episode 26 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>